Well, good morning, and a happy new year to you. About 15 minutes from now, I'll be able to tell who was up late last night, <laughs> and I'll be taking down names, just so you know. Turn with me in the living and abiding Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 1, where you will find our text for today, verses 3 through 9, First uh, Peter chapter 1. It is actually one lengthy sentence in the original language that continues all the way through to verse 12, but we're going to cut Peter off in mid-sentence and only go as far as verse 9. So please follow along as I read for us now this portion of God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a real push on the part of uh, a number of Irish and English missionaries to reach the country of Portugal. Uh, Portugal had remained untouched by and large by the Reformation. It was still very much a bastion of Roman Catholicism. But uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a concerted effort to penetrate that hard earth, that hard terrain with the glory of the gospel. Among those missionaries was a man by the name of Eric Barker. And Eric Barker went out in the year 1930 to Portugal, settled in the north of the country, and it was a tough ride, a tough time, food shortages, lack of basic amenities. The local priest still ruled with an iron fist, and so Eric was often the object of ridicule and scorn, often experienced opened, open persecution. And the situation only worsened in 1939 with the outbreak of World War II. He decided it would be best to send his wife and six children, along with his sister and her three children, back to England. And so he bid them farewell at the docks in Porto as they board, boarded the ship. And a few days later, on a Sunday morning, he received the telegram, ship torpedoed, all lost. 
later that afternoon at a little assembly, a little church he had established, he had founded in the downtown core of the city of Porto. He gathered with that uh, small number of believers, and he ascended the pulpit, and he simply said to them, I'd like to tell you that my family has arrived safely home. And he proceeded to preach the Word of God. It was only later that that small gathering of believers realized that when Eric Barker had said, my family has arrived safely home, he quite literally meant their heavenly home. I never met Eric Barker. He stayed another 50 years in Portugal and established other churches in the north of the country. I met his second wife, Beryl, and met many believers who knew him personally and all attested to the reality that this was indeed a man of God who lived his life on a far greater reality, according to a far greater reality than any earthly circumstances. It is exactly where Peter takes us in this portion of God's Word. Peter is writing to exiles. He is writing to Christians who are on the run. He uses the word suffering repeatedly throughout the epistle. He references the fiery ordeal, the fiery trial through which they are passing. It might very well be the beginning of persecution during the reign of that emperor, Roman emperor Nero, that reign that would take Peter's life eventually. And by the year, a few years after Peter's martyrdom, by the year 68, the Roman historian Tacitus could note there is not a Christian left in the city of Rome. They had all been killed or they had all fled. He is writing at the cusp of this outbreak of persecution. These Christians are already experiencing it. They are suffering. They are passing through a fiery ordeal. And what is astounding to me is that as Peter embarks on this epistle, he does not begin with their suffering. He does not begin with their problems. He does not begin with their pain. He does not begin with their loss. He does not begin with their grief. He begins with God. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed, it's our word, eulogy. You didn't know you knew Greek. Eulogy, it's the word. It's a compound word, two words stuck together. Two words that literally mean good word. Eulogy is to give a good word. To bless is to speak a good word. It is to speak well. It is to praise God. Blessed. This is Peter's starting point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he follows it up with three reasons. Here are three reasons why we are to praise God. Here are three reasons why we are to speak a good word. Speak 
well of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three reasons. Reason number one, God births us according to His mercy. And so look at what Peter goes on to say in the third verse. According to His, that is God's, great mercy, He, that is God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance in the fourth verse that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's a mouthful, isolated in your mind. There are four key clauses. Focus on, isolate the key clause right there in the middle of the third verse. He has caused us to be born again. We all know what it means to be born. A woman gives physical birth. We have all been born into this world. Here, Peter speaks of being born again. Why? Because being brought into this world, we are spiritually dead. Paul tells us we are dead by virtue of our trespasses and sins. This is known as the flesh. We are by nature at enmity with God. By nature, we are unable to please God. By nature, we don't even want to please God. This is our condition, but Peter tells us we have been born again. That by the Spirit of God... Christ has infused new life in us. Now look at all of the surrounding clauses. So he has caused us to be born again. Focus in on the preposition to. So this is what he has caused us to be born to, to a living hope. He expands on it in the fourth verse, to an inheritance. And so we have this hope. What makes it a living hope? It is a living hope because it is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is beyond corruption. It is beyond defilement. It is beyond decay. It is beyond any alteration because it is kept in heaven for you. Now look at the other clause right there back in verse 3. Yes, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, this suggests an instrument, a cause through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is how this new birth was brought about. Because you see, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, a couple of things are happening. The first is this. There we have God's attestation to the fact that He accepts Christ's payment on behalf of sinners. Secondly, in the resurrection, we have the Lord Jesus glorified. We have the Lord Jesus exalted to heaven from where He now sends the Holy Spirit into our lives. And it is that same Spirit who indwells Christ, who now indwells us, giving us spiritual life. And it is the same Spirit by whom Christ was raised from the dead, who now dwells in us, the same Spirit, the same power, by which we will be raised one day from the dead. And so you're getting all these clauses, you're putting it all together. Okay, He has caused us to be born again, I get it. 
I see what we've been born again to. It is a living hope. It is an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I now understand the instrument through which this has been brought about, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now look at the very first clause there in verse 3, according to His great mercy. There's the reason. The reason for which God has caused us to be born again to this living hope. It is rooted in the unsearchable greatness of His mercy. Mercy can only be accentuated by misery. And so you jump over into Luke 10. And there we have that tremendous parable, do we not, of the Good Samaritan. And there is that man traveling from Jerusalem going down to Jericho. And he falls among the thieves and the robbers. And they beat him, set upon him and beat him. And strip him, take everything from him and leave him for dead in the gutter. And several passers-by simply ignore him. And eventually the Samaritan walking by sees that man in his misery, and he has compassion toward him. And his compassion drives him, his pity drives him to bandage his wounds, to pour that healing oil ointment upon him, to set him upon his donkey, to get him to the inn, safety where he can recover, and to utter to the innkeeper whatever the expense you charge it to my account. Mercy accentuated against the backdrop of misery. And so there we were in our misery. There we were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, walking according to the power of the prince of the air, and completely oblivious to our spiritual plight. And against the backdrop of that darkness shines forth in all of its brilliance, the mercy, the mercy of God. Robert Robinson, it might, that might not be a name that is familiar to you. Uh, Robert Robinson, he was converted through the preaching of uh, George Whitfield. So we're back in the Great Awakening, back in the 1760s. And uh, Robert Robinson converted a short while after, he penned a hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Most of us know that one, right? Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. A short while after, uh, Robert Robinson fell into grievous sin. And he uh, distanced himself from the people of God. And he tried to run with all his might from the Lord Jesus Christ. And years later, he found himself traveling in a carriage. And across from him sat a young woman who had her nose in a book. It was a hymnal. And she was flipping through the pages, and every so often she would hum a tune and just reading the words as they were there on the pages. And suddenly she looked up and caught his eye and said, Sir, I'm struggling with this line. Could you perhaps uh, help me to understand it? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave. The God I love. Robinson cracked right there on the spot. 
and the tears started to flow, the lips started to quiver, his entire body started to shake, young woman. I wrote those words many, many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds to be able to go back in time. And that young girl just sat there like a deer caught in the headlights. Well, that's not what I was expecting. And just I did not know what to say, where to go. But in a flash of absolute divine inspiration, she looked back down to that hymnal and simply read, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to save my soul from danger, interposed his precious blood. And the Lord Jesus brought that wandering sheep, Robert Robinson, home to the fold. Anybody here today in need of mercy? You are. You might not know it, you are. We stand in need of mercy. Mercy accentuated by our misery. At times, at times, it is difficult to fully assess the full extent and magnitude of our misery. At times we take stock of our lives, and yes, we can list the sins we have committed. Yes, we can list the transgressions that weigh heavy upon the heart. But the heart is deceitfully wicked, isn't it? We don't even be, know one iota of the depths of our depravity and the depths of darkness that lurk in the inner recesses of the soul. If you want to come face to face with the magnitude of your misery, actually look away for yourself for just a moment and you enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, you must see, you must hear, and you must feel. And you must see the Lord Jesus there face down in the dirt, groveling, soaking wet, and sweating as it were great drops of blood. And you must hear the Lord Jesus cry, this pit of despair and anguish and torment, oh, let this cup pass from me. And you must feel that the Lord Jesus was sorrowful even unto death, the very breaking point. From the garden you travel to the cross, and there you must see, you must hear, and you must feel. And you must see that pulverized flesh suspended between heaven and earth upon Calvary's cross and recognize that even the sun itself refuses to shine upon him. You must hear that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you must feel the earth as it trembles. There is your misery, my friend, because you caused all that. Our sin is the cause of all of that. And when we see our misery and the torment, that it caused, our sin caused, our sins laid upon the Lord Jesus. 
Oh, then it sets forth, does it not, the brilliance, the sheer brilliance of God's mercy. And it brings home what Peter is celebrating in our text. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is reason number one why we bless God. God births us according to His mercy. Here is reason number two. God guards us by His power. It takes us into the fifth verse. Look at the first word, who. Who's the who? Well, he's already introduced the object, hasn't he? Back in verses 3 and 4, he is describing those who have been born again. Well, he still has these same people in view now as he transitions in the fifth verse. Who, those same people, those people whom God has caused to be born again to a living hope, they they are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Prepositions are your friends. They really are. Three beautiful prepositions in this verse. By God's power are being guarded. There's the first. By God's power. Through faith. There's the second. Here's the third. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So again, you isolate the main clause right there in the middle of the verse. We are being guarded. And now how are we being guarded? By God's power. There's the efficient cause. He looks on the earth and it trembles. A mere glance causes earthquakes. The psalmist says he touches the mountains and they shake, they smoke. A mere touch What? Volcanoes. These are but the outskirts of the beginnings of His power. And so we are being kept. We are being guarded. How? By God's power through, here's the instrumental cause, through faith. Because it is His power operative in us that strengthens our faith. How does that work? Is what we're doing right now. That as the Word of God is proclaimed, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments, we see and we behold the Lord Jesus and the power of God through the preaching of the Word, through the celebration of the Lord's Supper, strengthens our faith whereby these realities, we come face to face with them and they are not mere abstractions. These are heavenly realities that take on an earthly reality. And our faith is strengthened for, here's the final cause, a salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. What is this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? He has already told us back in verse 3, it is the living hope. He has told us in verse 4, it is the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so we have this great certainty, this unwavering conviction that right now in the present, as we have our eyes focused on this living hope, that by the power of God through faith for that salvation, we are being guarded. We are being preserved. We are being kept. Centuries ago, fourth century, late 300s, 
there was an extremely important church father by the name of Basil. And Basil lived in the city of Cappadocia. It's not called that today, in what is now known as the country of Turkey. And Basil fell out of favor with the Roman emperor. He fell out of favor with the Roman emperor because the emperor dared to insert himself into a theological controversy that was plaguing the church in those days. And essentially, Basil said to the Roman emperor, look, sir, you need to stay in your lane. This does not concern you. It is none of your affair, none of your business. The Roman emperor was less than impressed. He sent his prefect, Modestus, to confront Basil. He says, you need to reprimand that bishop and you need to bring him into line. And so Modestus, he travels all the way to Cappadocia. He enters into the presence of Basil and he tells Basil, you owe the emperor an apology. You need to remember who you are and you need to grovel before the emperor that he might pardon and forgive you. And Basil's response was something simply to the effect, is that all you've got to say? I stand by it. The man has no business intruding himself in the affairs of the church. And Modesto was absolutely scandalized. His mouth dropped. He didn't know what to say. Though finally his body shaking, irate, he yells at Basil, Do you not understand? I have the power of confiscation, banishment, torture, and death. Basil's meek reply, that's all you've got? That's it? Confiscation? I don't own anything. Well, I do, earthly speaking, but I don't really, because it all belongs to God. I'm simply a steward. He gives and he takes away as he pleases. Banishment? Well, I don't really have a country. I do. I'm a Roman citizen, and I am a citizen of this city, Cappadocia. But my citizenship is actually above. Take my citizenship, you've taken nothing. Torture? I'm an old man. His body's already falling apart. What are you going to do? I'm awaiting a resurrection anyway, when the perishable will put on the imperishable. Death? Oh, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Is that all you've got? And Modestus absolutely dumbfounded. No one has ever talked to me like that before. And Basil's simple, simple response, well, perhaps it's because you've never spoken to a Christian before. Confiscation? Friends, we don't own anything. The sooner we realize it, the better. We are stewards, entrusted with what belongs to us, earthly speaking, but we don't really belong it, own it. Here today, gone tomorrow. Banishment, our country, yes, we should be praying for our country and seek the good of our country. But ultimately, our citizenship is above, and the kingdom to which we belong is not of this world. Torture, my body's falling apart. All of our bodies are going to fall apart. Some of you 20-year-olds are staring at me, what are you talking about? You check back in with me in 20 years. And I'll look you straight in the eye and say, I told you so. Lovingly, of course, but I told you so. Death, to live is Christ. To die is gain. God does not promise us immunity from any of those things. He doesn't. He promises us 
that by His power, He guards us and He keeps us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Augustus Toplady put it so well. My name from the palms of his hands. Eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains. In marks of indelible grace. Indelible, permanent. Yes, I to the end shall endure. As sure as the earnest is given. More blessed, but not more secure the glorified spirits in heaven. And so you think of those loved ones, friends, family who have gone before us, they're now with the Lord. And are they happier than us right now? Yes, they are. Are they more secure than us right now? No, they are not. We are guarded, kept by the almighty power of God. And when the Lord calls me home and my soul is glorified in his presence, will I be happier then, more blessed then than I am now? Certainly. Will I be more secure then than I am now? No. I am secure in the arms of the Lord Jesus, held and kept by the almighty power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is why we cry, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's reason number three. One, in case you missed it, I realize the sermon notes are very complicated today, but here they are again. God births us according to His mercy. Number two, God guards us by His power. And number three, it takes us into verses six and seven. God tests us for His glory. Look at the sixth verse. Remember, it is but one sentence in the original language. In this, in what? What's he talking about? Well, what he has just explained in verses 3 through 5. What he has just declared concerning this new birth according to God's mercy. What he has just emphasized concerning God keeping us by his almighty power. In this, in these realities, in this living hope, what do you now do? You rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jump back to verse 6, exceedingly important. Let me give you a brief four-point outline. It's a sermon in and of itself. You can write the sermon this afternoon, but here's the outline. Trials are multicolored. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials are multicolored. Where did I get that from? It's the actual meaning of that word various. So trials come in various hues and shades and colors. If you are a Christian, I guarantee it right now, you are passing through a trial, if not trials. How can I affirm such a thing? Simply because God disciplines all those whom He loves. 
And so various trials are the Christian's lot, and they are multicolored. Second thing you need to notice in this verse is this. Trials cause joy and sorrow to hold hands. In this, verse 6, in this you what? Rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been what? Make up your mind. Grieved by various trials. Am I rejoicing or grieving? It is both. They, they, they are not opposites. They, they, are, they are not contrasts. These are, this is a two-fold twin reality of the Christian's present experience that we rejoice in the light of this living hope even though now we live in a fallen world experiencing very, various trials which are of their very essence grievous. The third thing to notice is this. Trials are but mayflies. I'll explain that in a moment. Hold the thought. Trials are but mayflies. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while. What is a mayfly? Do we get them here in Texas? I can't remember. We probably do. Do we a little bit? You get up into Wisconsin or Minnesota. You get over into Ontario. Good night. These little things, they lay their eggs, right? And uh, there they are in the water and the streams. And then May comes around. The temperatures rise. The ice dissipates, cracks up and disappears. And they emerge from this larva. And you get these mayflies. And they completely cover the land. Thick, thick as clouds. You know what the average lifespan is of a mayfly? 24 hours. 24 hours, if they're lucky, 24 hours. And what do they do in those 24 hours? They feed, they breed, and they die. They feed, they breed, and they die. 24 hours. Oh, that is Peter's point here, that in this we rejoice, though now, but for a little while, momentary passing season, fleeting, dissipating, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8, I, I do not consider, I do not consider, I've taken stock and I've thought this through, and I've meditated hard upon it, and here is my conclusion, I do not consider present suffering worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Oh, trials are multicolored. Trials cause joy and sorrow to hold hands. Trials are but mayflies. And here's the fourth point in that little mini-sermon. Trials are necessary. Again, it's right there in the sixth verse. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. Why, why are they necessary? Peter tells us in the seventh verse, so that, it's a purpose clause, so that these trials, what's the purpose of these trials? They test. They test something. What are they testing? What are they trying? The genuineness of your faith. That faith which is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So that that faith, so the purpose clause keeps building, right? And so, and so we're being tested now for a little while through various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith and so the purpose extends may be found and now he moves into the future to result in what? 
Well, that lively hope, that inheritance that is guarded for us, that final salvation in the last time, what's going to happen? It will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you see, you think of that ore, and you think of that gold, and the goldsmith who desires to purify it. And how does he purify it? He adds the heat. And it is the heat that forces out the impurities. And so Amy Carmichael, she tells a fascinating story about this. hundred years ago now in India, I think in Calcutta. And there she is in a bazaar in the city of Calcutta. She has several of her orphans that she cares for in tow. And they happen upon a goldsmith. And there he is in the bazaar with these roof tiles over an open fire with the ore inserted between the roof tiles, seeking to extract and purify the gold. And he is adding fuel to the fire and heating these roof tiles. And every so often he'll look in and then shut it again. And this goes on for some time. And finally, one of those orphan boys, he simply says to the goldsmith, look, sir, what are you looking for? And the goldsmith turns to him and says, look, I will know it is pure when I can see my face in it. That's what the trials are all about, my friend. That's what the difficulty is all about right now. There is the source of the suffering right now that God, by applying the fire, is testing our metal, the genuineness of our faith, that the impurities might be burned away, forced out, whereby the genuineness of our faith may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He applies the trials because he is seeking to find the face of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. And what does that face look like? Oh, help me out here. My memory's going. Love, joy, peace, patience. This is, where, this is where I get, this is where I stumble. Is it gentleness, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Something like that. Galatians 5, you can read it later. The face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we declare, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because yes, He births us according to His mercy. Yes, He guards us by His power. And thirdly, He tests us for His glory. What does this blessing look like? What does it look like in us when we speak well of God? Well, Peter leaves us in no doubt in verse 8. Look at what he says. Though you have not seen Him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And so what does this well speaking of God look like? Here it is. It is love-fueled, faith-filled, inexpressible joy as these three glorious truths come home. He births us according to His mercy. He guards us by His power, and He tests us for His glory. 
whereby we proclaim, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know all those years ago if that was what was going through the mind of Eric Barker. I don't know, word for word. But I'm pretty sure it was pretty close. Now, that man lived his life according to a reality far greater than his earthly circumstances that enabled him to rejoice in the midst of the grief and enabled him to faithfully proclaim, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A word to the unbeliever as we close, in light of everything you have heard, it is simply this from the lips of the Lord Jesus. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who is thirsty come. That as you have seen something of your misery, and you have seen something of God's mercy in His Son, Jesus Christ, that you might realize, be brought to the understanding by the Spirit of grace, that the answer to every question, the remedy for every sin, the healing for every ailment, and the living hope beyond compare is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Let him who is thirsty come. And to the believer, when you, it was all said and done, and we think on this living hope, what is it the Lord Jesus would have us here this day? I think it can be summed up as follows his words. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. Here we are, January 1st, 2023. This would be a great day for the Lord Jesus to come back. I'm not picky. I'll take any day in 2023. <laughs> a living, lively hope. Behold, I come quickly. Oh, I feel it acutely. I feel it acutely with every passing year. I feel it acutely with every pain, every ache, every sorrow, every loss. I feel it acutely with every joy, delight, sunrise, sunset. I feel it acutely with every headline, with every travesty and tragedy. Oh, I feel it acutely. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, a living hope. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would impress it deep upon our hearts this day that truly we would orient our lives accordingly and that this might resound in your eternal praise and glory and honor. We do thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus into this world. We thank you that he was indeed born of woman, born under the law, and he has come to redeem those who were languishing under the sentence of the law. And so we intercede on any this day who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that you might bring conviction and awareness of sin, that you might remove the scales from their eyes to see the glory of your mercy in Jesus Christ, and that they might be compelled and driven to place their faith in him and in him alone, who is the hope of glory. This we pray, this we ask, we seek it. In uh, the matchless name of the Lord Jesus, we do pray. Amen.